But uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 4. I have found a fresh appreciation for the book of Proverbs. And, and it, it is, uh, at first glance, a disjointed kind of rambling, who knows what you're going to get when you read it. But the more you read it, the more clearer it becomes. And this is one that jumped out to me about two months ago, and I couldn't wait for a night like tonight so I could preach it. I don't know any of you that's ever preached, you'll get a message and you want to preach it, but you got to hold on to it. I got, I've already right now working on next year's Easter sermon. I want to preach it so bad, but I'm going to wait till Easter. It kind of burns a hole in my, not in my pocket, but in my, in my sermon book. But Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 4, it's a simple proverb and this is what it says. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Now, lest you wonder how in the world am I going to get that on a Christmas night. Well, remember, I've been reading this year the English Standard Version, and this is what it says about it, and I think you'll begin to put some things together. Where there is no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. And I want to preach to you tonight, I'm so glad the manger was full. I'm so glad the manger was full. Why don't you bow your heads and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. Father, we are in this place where we are reading and hearing your word and letting your word be expounded unto us. And God, I'm asking that everyone here from our, uh, our mind, our soul, our ears, every part of us, Lord, I want to hear the word, I want to receive the word, and I want to act upon the word. And I ask that you would touch us in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. And you can be seated in Jesus' name. Now, lest I, I just try to twist it because it happens to use the word manger and try to pull out a, a Christmas sermon out of that, I do think it is important to understand the context wherewith Solomon wrote this proverb. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. This is, and I don't know if this is the right wordage to use, I call it a circular argument, I don't know if that's the proper term, but it, it's, it's kind of like that age-old question, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You ever thought about that? What came first, the chicken or the egg? Just so that you don't spend the rest of my sermon thinking about that and I lose you, let me tell you the answer that I have found for that. I have found that the chicken came first because, uh, and, and the way I get that is I go back to the book of Genesis and I find that God did not create Adam and Eve as little babies. He did not create them as embryos in the womb. He created them as adults and so I'm going to assume he did the same with chickens. And so that's my theological uh, understanding of the argument, who, uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg. But this is what that proverb means. Number one, it means that, that if you have no oxen or if you don't allow the oxen to work, there's not going to be any plowing being done. There's not going to be any sowing being done. There's not going to be any harvesting being done, which means the corn crib or whatever you store your wheat or, or crops in is going to be empty and there'll be nothing to feed the ox. It's kind of a circular thing. 
if you have nothing to feed the ox. The ox dies. If the ox dies, you can't go plow. If you can't plow, you can't plant the seed. If you can't plant the seed, you can't reap a harvest. And so the point is, I want my manger not to be some pretty clean thing because that's not what it was created for. The manger, the, the crib, and I don't know how many uh, country people are around here, but, but I, I knew crib more than just what you put a baby in. I, I was raised with words like the corn crib. In fact, Brother Don, on, on a piece of property that you own, you and I have been on there hunting uh, way back there uh, up on the mountainside. It is. There's an old corn crib and, and a kind of an old grist mill that's probably been there from the 1800s. It's where they would store the corn. This manger was much of the same thing. It was a place that you could put feed and the animals could come and they could eat out of that. I'm glad the manger wasn't empty. I'm glad the manger wasn't just a pretty little thing that looked so perfect. I hate to bust your bubble with your nativity scenes and I don't know how exactly Sister uh, Peters is going to tell us the Christmas story but it's going to be good, I promise you. But the, the manger was not a perfect little piece of wood. The place in which they were at, whether you want to call it an inn, a stable, or a cave, all of those have some some historical uh, references that would back it up. It wasn't a pretty little thing. It was a place where animals were. I'm glad that manger wasn't empty because if the manger was empty, there could have been no harvest. Luke begins to write in Luke chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. Luke is an intriguing person in the Bible. Luke begins to write, and this is what he says, and I may be reading out of the English Standard Version, I'm not for sure, but it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, again, see, I'm, I'm learning that all of the Bible holds some powerful truths. And I want you to realize that in this seemingly simplistic, uh, but yet kind of hard to understand opening, there's powerful things there. If ever a man wrote a book, a gospel, that had good news for everybody, Dr. Luke would have been the writer. Dr. Luke wanted to make sure that his key message, which you can find in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, which simply says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke was a, a Greek, or at least had very uh, uh, much Greek teaching in his background. We don't know a lot about Luke. There's only about four verses in the Bible, or four places in the Bible where even his name is even mentioned, but Luke... He, he was not interested in are you a Jew or are you a Gentile. Luke was not interested in necessarily a genealogy or proving anything. What Luke wanted to show was that Jesus Christ came to live among sinners. Jesus Christ came to love sinners. Jesus Christ came to help sinners. And Jesus Christ came to die for the lost. In the Gospel of Luke, you don't have any other Gospel that lays it out so carefully as Luke did. You meet individuals. You see the crowds. It becomes alive as you read his narrative. Women and children, men, poor people, rich people, sinners and saints. It's a book, a Gospel for everyone. 
Luke wanted to make sure you got the point. Most likely he was a Gentile trained as a physician. I find that interesting as his doctor's mind thinks he opens it with two births. The birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. He wrote uh, a very careful history. Luke would have understood the importance of journaling and making sure. He was writing this gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Those really, although we separate them, it it should be the same book. You ought to finish Luke and just jump right into the book of Acts. But uh, he wrote it for Theophilus. Theophilus literally translated means lover of God. Most commentators and historians will tell you that although we know not a lot about Theophilus, we know that he was most likely a Roman official that somewhere in his life began to trust God and maybe have even been saved or, or, or had something that began to happen in his life and he wants to be established in the faith. And so it is that Luke begins to write so that a man who knows nothing would understand the scope of what God has done. He was a seeker. He was one that was hungry for what God could give him and so Luke began to teach him there were other books that were written there were other gospels that had been written but Luke carefully because Luke was not an eyewitness most likely to most of the things that happened Luke was not a Peter who was there or a John who was able to lean his head on Jesus' bosom but Luke said I've got to know it for myself so that I can tell others about what God has done So Luke carefully researched. He found those eyewitnesses. I'm firmly convinced that those that you read about in the book of Luke, Luke sought them out later in their life and said, Mary, tell me what really happened. Tell me, uh, uh, Lazarus, tell me what it really was like. And so you begin to see this come out. Luke had to have interviewed Mary The story, the account that you find would have been incredible. It says, in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed of a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's virgin's name was Mary. You've heard me mention it. You heard Sister Buford speak of it during the songs. But the angel told her, you're going to conceive in your womb And you're going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be be great and shall be called the son of the most high. The Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. I like this. Mary did what a lot of us would do. Mary had almost tuned out everything up to that point. She was stuck on one thing. How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you, and a child will be born who will be called Holy, the Son of God. He goes on to say, For nothing is impossible with God. I'm I'm, I'm getting to the manger for a moment, because Luke chapter 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. 
Joseph went up from Galilee, from Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. A manger. Now, I know we pass over this. We want to get to the shepherds and the wise men. We want to get to the gifts of frankincense and myrrh. But I'm stuck today on the manger was full. Now, again, I, I don't know how many of you, I'm, I'm, I got a lot of cage and a redneck in me, and, and, and I, I tend to, if I'm not careful, slip into a vernacular that most of you wouldn't understand and, and, and how it works and uh but there's an old saying that I've heard all my life and even used it a time or two. For example, if somebody was going to give you some advice on a particular subject, and, and, and I knew that, that, that for, for example, if uh, Jared, if Brother Sponsler was going to talk to you, an elder was going to give you some advice, and I wanted to make sure that you really listened to him. That you didn't just let it be an old man talking to you, but you understood how, how important. I would want you to know that Brother Sponsler knows what he's talking about. And I would tell you to listen up when he speaks. And this is the saying I would say. Because he has a lot of corn in his crib. What that means is he walks the walk more than just talking the talk. He's been there, done that. There was something about a manger that was full that showed everyone around you knew what you were talking about. And so today I want to tell you, I know it's, it's simple in a sense. I know that for many of you it's just something you've heard over and over. But may I remind you what lay in those swaddling clothes in an old manger in a dusty old stable where animals used to be. The Bible says in Leviticus chapter 17, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement for your soul. All the way back to the beginning of, of this kind of organized understanding of salvation, God said there will be blood required to atone for the soul of mankind. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says it this way. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no remission. No removal of sin. It's the same words you find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. When it says you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. You cannot have remission unless blood has been shed. But here's the key. Jesus hinted at it in the book of Luke chapter 24. This is after he has risen from the grave. It says that they were there in Jerusalem and 11 of them were gathered together and some others were there. And, and all of a sudden Jesus just kind of shows up and he stands in them, in the midst of them. And, and he said unto them, he said, see my hands and my feet. Show, I want you to see it's me. Touch them. Thomas, if you have to, put your hands in the wounds there. Because I am He. A spirit does not have flesh and bloods as you, and flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. Jesus was explaining something that is very important for you and I to understand. 
that if blood is required for the remission and the atonement of sin and that a spirit does not have flesh and blood then what that tells me is the great God of heaven in just the way we understand God does not have the ability to atone for the sin unless somehow blood is received. So it is that if I could back you or, or take you a little bit farther in, or in, Ma, or in, in Matthew chapter 26 Jesus eating there the Passover he takes the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said take, eat, this is my body this is what we call communion and on uh, January the 7th on that Sunday night at, 10, at 6 p.m. Sunday night 6 p.m. January the 7th we're going to take as a church body the communion and we will read those verses and we will expound upon those but Jesus was saying do this in remembrance of me this is my body he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying drink ye all of it for this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many the remission of of sins. When he held that cup of wine or grape juice or whatever fruit of the vine it was, I can assure you it was not that that represented the remission of sins, but it was what was about to take place on an old rugged cross when Jesus willingly stretched forth his hands and died there and blood ran down that cross. When it ran down that cross, he was saying, I'm fulfilling what was said all the way in Leviticus, for without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin Romans chapter 5 says it this way much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son being much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life and not only we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus in whom we have received the atonement Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7 places it this way. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1.14, almost the same thing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Colossians 1.20 reminds us that he made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Hebrews Chapter 13 and verse 12 says that Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. When, when you gather, in, and if we could in our mind, when you gather around that manger, oh, I know the, the little song that, that, that was, I think, pretty much one of the opening songs that we gave uh, or, or that we sang was Away in a Manger. It's a cute song, and I'm not trying to, to do a, a disservice to that. Uh, it, it becomes almost a lullaby. In fact, if you go to research the history of that song, uh, it, it is, it, it's probably not written by Martin Luther, but a lot of it attributes to that and calls it Luther's cradle song. It became a little lullaby. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. 
the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. It's a cute song. It's a pretty song. We're going to probably sing it next Sunday. And I like singing it. But could I tell you tonight that when you gather around the manger, you're not looking at a little helpless baby boy. When you gather around the manger with the shepherds around you, you're not celebrating just the birth of some little bouncing baby boy. But could I tell you today that when you look in that manger, it's filled not with something that we celebrate only at Christmas but it's filled with the fullness of the God that you and I serve today. What was lying in the manger was none other than God himself come down to earth, manifest in the flesh, seen of angels, justified in the spirit, received up into glory. We know the manger was more than full. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. I sure wish you have your Bible and I want you to turn there because I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture because I like how it all flows together. If you know your Bible, you probably, will, 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 one, one or two verses will pop out at you. But let's put it all together. Paul began to write to the church there in Colossians. and give thanks unto the Lord which hath made us to be meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. But watch verse 15. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body the, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you catch that? He's the image of an invisible God. This is not a, a, a second God that shows up. This is not a second uh, one that, that was in heaven that just came down. I remember, and I've said it here before, I remember Sister Buford in, 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 in college, someone saying that God didn't want to get his hands dirty with mankind, so he sent his son to do the dirty work. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, and I don't care if the guy had a Ph.D. in theology or not. That's stupid. Because I'm going to tell you right now, never once has God looked at you and I and said, I don't want to mess with you. I'm going to send my lackey to do the work. I'm going to send my servant to do the work. I'm going to let somebody else stoop down. No, what a God that condescended himself, that said, I can walk on the thrones. I can walk on the waters. I can walk through the heavens, but I will be shown. I'm going to come down, put myself in a manger. But it's more than that. It's more than just God putting on a costume. It's more than just God robed in flesh. But it was God becoming flesh. Because remember, blood was required. Colossians chapter 2 goes on to tell us in verse 8. And again, this was written to those that wanted to go back to some Jewish understanding. They wanted to go back to the law. They wanted to go back to a lot of rules and regulations. And this is how it is. And he said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in Christ, in him, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
Jesus was not a part of the Godhead. The Bible says that in Jesus, the fullness, everything about it dwelled in him. And you are complete in him, which is the head of principality and power. You are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in that the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through faith of the operation of God that raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and your and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all your ordinances and blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us he took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross the only way I can understand this the only way I can explain it is if you had an entire litany a list of things that you've done wrong if you were at a court of law and they begin to read the charges and they had to get multiple pieces of paper, your charges were so long. Those ordinances, they were contrary. Everything about those sins condemned you to death. Everything about those sins says you don't deserve to live. Your eternity is going to be one of torment. But Jesus Christ, God, manifest in the flesh, the one that lay in that manger, he did so so that one day he could take all of those uh, accounts that have been against you, all of those charges that were against you, and he took them and he nailed them to the cross and the blood that was shed there the Bible says spoiled those principalities and powers and he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it it was God manifest in the flesh in that manger there was one God Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Why in the world would the God of all creation ever desire to become or to show himself or to make himself visible as a tiny baby in an old manger? It's because an empty manger means no harvest is coming. Let me remind you again, Proverbs chapter 14. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. While that absolutely is a, a proverb for today, while it absolutely is a, a proverb for the for the real world and, and you gotta work in order to get food, you gotta you know, get the ox out there to work. I understand all of that. But today there's something far better than corn or wheat or barley in that manger. Lying in the manger is something more greater than anything that humanity could ever put there. But when God put himself in that manger, he was fulfilling an incredible thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50 begins to say this. Now I say, brethren... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, let me show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all just die, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
Now we like to read this a lot at funerals and, and I think it ought to be read at a, at a Christian's funeral. One that has lived a life that has followed the ordinances of the Bible. But please do not relegate this to a funeral message. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So that when this corruption hath put on incorruption and this mortal hath put on immortality... It shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I will tell you today that that verse cannot happen unless a reverse takes place. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. I've got to put this corruptible, got to put on incorruption. This mortal has to put on immortality. But the only way that that happens is that once an immortal God said, I'm going to come down as a mortal man. That an incorruptible God says, I'll have to be, come like a corruptible human. That, that, that I will have to give up the throne for a cross in order that one day you could walk on streets of gold. The reason that you and I are able to be born again into a spiritual body that can inherit the kingdom of God is because first, God became flesh. God became blood. So that once and for all, He could pay sin's ransom for our souls. It started in a smelly old musty manger. But look where it's led us. It started as a cute little baby boy lying there. Shepherds and wise men came. That's not where the story ends. It trans... It, it, it walked forward some 33 years to an old rugged cross. And there what was once in a manger now hung between heaven and hell. And the blood that was shed atoned for every sin that's ever been committed I want you to catch it for a moment I did not say that everyone is automatically saved because we understand that many have been called but few are chosen and I don't mean that in a Calvinistic predestination way what that means is whosoever will let him come God came to seek and to save that which is lost he came for all to be saved but only those that receive it can be saved how many of you have moved or cleaned out a closet <coughs> and you found a, a gift that somebody gave you like five years ago? Have I ever done it? Mm -hmm. It's just a beautiful night. It, it, we, we'd, it'd probably been six, seven, eight years. We opened up, found, found a pack of cards and opened it up. There's a gift card. I could have used it any time I wanted that's what it means, what Jesus did on the cross. It was an, 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 an ability.
ability for you and I to come and be saved, but you have to use it. But when he died on that cross, he died for the remission of every sin that has ever or will ever been committed. The blood that was shed has no limits. The blood will never lose its power because what lie in that manger was the greatest thing that's ever happened on this world. I want you to stand today. I'm so glad that manger was full. That manger allows you and I to come boldly before the throne, to lift up our hands and give Him praise. It allows you and I to come and freely ask Him, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would you make me whole? Because where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. The flip side of that is where the manger is dirty, there are oxen. And where there are oxen, abundant crops come. Because the manger was full, look at what we can receive today. Whosoever will, let him come. I wonder if you could close your eyes for a moment. I want you to look back at an old manger. And I want you to see the great thing that God has wrought in our life right now. You were the word at the beginning. One with 